Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. chapter 24 and verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful and word indeed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has, appeared, and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as Peter said, we're, we've come to the end of a series on the Gospel of Luke. And over the last nine weeks, Um, Peter has very uh, carefully taken us through this message of redemption and undeserved salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to thank him 
for allowing me to, uh, or inviting me to speak at this last session. Um, I kind of, as I've been thinking of it over the last um, few weeks, um, I've kind of seen it as akin to Peter having built a tower of cards, somewhat um, patiently, skillfully, all delicately balanced, and uh, here am I adding the final block. And I'm kind of uh, wondering, when I'm finished, will it be the full tower left standing or will the whole thing collapse with my clumsy addition of the last two cards? And with that in mind, although Peter just prayed, I want to pray too. So let's just pray for a moment. Lord, in the passage we just heard, our Savior opened the minds of these two men on the road to Emmaus. Uh, to followers who'd fallen into confusion. They were lost, Lord, and he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And we know, Lord, this morning our minds will be closed. There'll be a veil over our thinking unless you reveal the scriptures to us. So we ask this morning that you would be the teacher, that you'd open our minds, open our hearts to be able to receive your wisdom. Grant, we ask, understanding, But more than that, grant us conviction and faith that we would go out today not just with knowledge, but with life-changing belief. We pray our lives will be transformed by the truth we will hear in your inspired word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've got a version of the Bible with you, um, do turn to this final chapter of Luke. And if not, don't worry, the screens will show everything that you need. Um, There are three headings around which I'll address the chapter. The first is no end to wonder, and then we'll have no end to witness, and finally, no end to worship. So starting with no end to wonder. Now I wonder if you've seen the film, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, It's Frank Capra's 1946 movie starring James Stewart as a small-town fund and loans manager, a property and loans manager. Um, He's on the verge of committing suicide, and he's visited by an angel, beautifully called Clarence. And the angel shows him the true importance of his life. Now... Over the years, I've watched this movie many times. Uh, I know it very well. And yet, George's proposal um, to Mary Hatch, it still brings a warm smile to my lips. And uh, I still get angry at the meanness of the banker, um, Mr. Potter, who's very uh, unscrupulous. Um, And I'm still even now likely to shed the odd tear at the finale when, of course, goodness prevails and George Bailey's virtue shines through. I am moved, like so many. It's rated the best Christmas film of all time virtually every year in virtually every poll. And yet, now just in case you're not sure, every character... Every scene, every single word spoken in that film is complete fiction. And here we are today in Luke, a true account 
of a far more wonderful life. The life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was so much more wise, so much more humble, more loving, more servant-hearted, more undeserving of our scorn and mockery than even George Bailey. And yet, also, the king of all that is seen and unseen, our Lord and Savior. There should be no end to our wonder at hearing this gospel account, this good news. And this chapter, this finale, it's not just an element of the story. If I go back to the tower that uh, you saw, it's not just the topping off, but it's the very foundation. It's the opposite. It's everything that our faith rests upon. Everything depends on this. If it just feels as though this is the epilogue um, the, of the life of Jesus Christ, then you've missed it. It's the goal of his life. It's the purpose of his life. It's his resurrection. It's the divine vindication of the work he did on the cross. Easter Sunday is the most um, it's the celebration of the most important event in the history of the world. God raising Jesus from the dead and so affirming and validating and vindicating the fact that Christ had indeed borne our sins in his own body on the cross. But are you full of wonder? Does the good news gladden your heart? Does it draw you closer to the one who died to lift us out of the darkness that we might know everlasting light and life with him? Or are we hardened to the events described in Luke? Do we simply regard it as a fairy tale, kind of misguided wishful thinking? And yet we know Luke was a thorough scholar and he is recording actual events with more historical evidence for their truth than any other recorded secular events of the time. Or maybe for you, familiarity has just blunted your amazement when we read that story. Or maybe the events recorded in Luke up to now they just don't square with the way you expect the almighty creator of the universe to be. Do you ever wish our savior was more of an heroic hero with a kind of golden sword um, that he would cleave through all opposition, all evil, carrying uh, a clear course and path to goodness and salvation for us all? Well, if that's how you feel, you're not alone. Many of the people at the time of his ministry, his earthly ministry, felt the same. At the beginning, well, there was huge excitement as Jesus healed and rescued the lost, the lame, the lepers. He raised the dead. He brought hope to the helpless. He brought light and love to the least of the lowly. But then... Well, he was seemingly overcome, defeated by evil, and he died 
shamefully on a cross. And many at the time thought that meant his mission had ended in failure. Paul writes in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, a cross. That was the Jewish view. Jesus was cursed by God. His crucifixion was proof that God had rejected him. It was inconceivable that this was the Son of God. He wasn't the Messiah, our rescuer, our savior, God's chosen king at all. Or so his followers thought. And it's why we find these two men on the road to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. Christ is dead. His mission failed. For them it was over. But they'd misunderstood. The scriptures were clear. Jesus was clear from the beginning. He told them what would happen many times. Most recently and most unequivocally in Luke 18 from verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Now in verse 7 of chapter 24, the women who went to the tomb, they were reminded of these very words by two men in gleaming clothes. And only then, in verse 8, they remembered his words. They hadn't understood. And maybe we still misunderstand. And I sometimes wonder if our misunderstanding arises from the fact that it's so hard to come to terms with the fact that people just like us were instrumental in his crucifixion. People just like us screamed for it. People just like us laughed at him, tormented him, rejected him. It seemed like total failure. After all, if people like us could overcome God's chosen king and put him to death, well, then maybe he wasn't God's king at all. But if that's where your logic leads you, then you're forgetting Yahweh, the one immortal, invisible, ineffable God. God of the universe, who cannot fail. If that's where your logic leads you, you've forgotten the resurrection. Jesus returning to life, conquering death. Yes, he died, proving that though he was God, he walked on earth as a man. And his enemies killed him. And in doing so, they thought they'd vanquished the threat to their own self-importance. You know, as a boy, I watched countless westerns, cowboys and Indians battling, usually over land rights. 
And uh, since then, of course, awareness has kind of been turned on its head. And we now see the indigenous American tribes as the innocent, the persecuted, the noble. But not when I was young. They were Hollywood's bloodthirsty baddies, the, the wicked savages. And when they attacked the supposedly righteous white man, I used to watch in terror. But I knew that if only they could kill the chief, if the Indian chief could be killed, I knew the marauding tribes would retreat. They'd acknowledge defeat. Well, Jesus the chief of this new way of thinking, this new way of understanding our relationship with God. This perceived enemy of the Jewish leaders has been killed, murdered, crucified, and his followers retreated. They acknowledged disappointment and defeat. Because despite what Jesus was telling them for three years, about how this would happen, no one expected it. They couldn't square it in their minds. And now, with the loss of its champion, its leader, surely the movement that he spearheaded would flounder and die. Like the Philistines at the death of Goliath, one, Goliath 1 Samuel 17, when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Is that what we're doing in this, in the embers of 2020? Jesus is dead, and so we turn and run to find our own way. Like these two disciples, they didn't expect Jesus to die in the manner he did. So we can hardly expect them to believe he'd be raised from the dead. After all, he was buried in a tomb. None of them thought he could break the bonds of death. They were simply devastated, disappointed, desperately so. They'd forgotten what Jesus had told them. They had turned their backs, they'd retreated. And I wonder if some of us here have done the same thing. Shed tears of joy at the promises of Jesus while he was alive but wept in disappointment at his death. You know, once uh, back in the 1980s, I took part in one of those Graham Kendrick celebrations. It was an Easter celebration. And as we sang, we got to that, that verse, that wonderful verse, um, come see his hands and his feet, the scars that speak of sacrifice, hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. And as we sang those words, I looked out over the gathering and there was a woman in floods of tears at what I took to be great sorrow. So I approached her afterwards to see if she was okay. And uh, she told me, no, those weren't tears of sorrow. They were tears of joy because I know he rose again and I am so, so full of wonder. And it is wonderful. We should be full of wonder. If we believe. When the women reported to the eleven in verse 9, um, with great joy and hope, what they'd seen at the empty tomb and their belief that Jesus must have risen, verse 11, the eleven disciples did not believe the women. 
because their words seemed to them like nonsense. I love the King James Version, which says their words seemed to them as idle tales. Well, at least Peter hurried to the tomb, didn't need to check it out. Maybe he was remembering more sharply his rebuke from Jesus, which we hear about in Matthew 16. When Jesus told the disciples he was going to die, Peter said, no, 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 Lord, no, that's not going to happen. No, no, no. What did Jesus respond with? Get behind me, Satan. When Peter found the empty tomb, he left, verse 12, wondering what had happened, which I think is a great line. Surely the penny was finally dropping. And when two disciples, two followers, encountered our Lord on the road to Emmaus, he had to explain to them again what they surely already knew. But sadly, they didn't believe. He said to them, verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And in the manner we come to expect of Jesus, with love and patience, he taught them. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. He was telling them, This is a time for rejoicing, not weeping. A time to press on, not turn back. A time of heavenly hope, not deep despair. He was telling them, this was God's plan from the beginning. I'm under no curse. I came to die so that you might live. And I guess he reminded them of of the Passover The sacrifice of an unblemished lamb and its blood smeared on the doorpost to prevent them suffering, the the Jews suffering destruction. And he might have reminded them of of the Day of Atonement, that festival of seeking purification and forgiveness of sins. And he surely would have taken them back to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before, words they probably knew off by heart, words which foretold of the one who would be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And he would have explained, he was the fulfillment of these prophecies and patterns, proved by the ultimate vindication of God through his unique resurrection. So this is a tale that spans the centuries As Peter said last week, it's a tale of wickedness, betrayal, violence, injustice, cowardice, and satanic forces. As we read it, as we believe it, 
Can we fail to be wholly captivated? There's no end of wonder. And there's no end of witness. You know, it's clear that these two men who met Jesus were, in verse 16, they were kept from recognizing him. It's clear they still didn't get it, even as he taught them. And I guess we can forgive them, can't we? After all, they were witnessing a unique event in human history, way outside their experience. They'd given up, and they were walking in a kind of disappointed daze. After Jesus teaches them, Luke relates the lovely events when they reach Emmaus, verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Maybe they'd heard from the apostles how at the Last Supper Jesus had broken bread and told them to take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. And so this breaking of bread brought it all flooding back as a clear demonstration of truth, proof of his glorification, which is why when we take communion, We take it in remembrance that his body was broken, his blood was shed, but most importantly, that he rose again, defeating death once and for all. And the two followers were not alone in witnessing. The Bible specifically says that on Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the women that came to Jesus' tomb. That's Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna. He appeared to Peter also, and he appeared to the remainder of the 12 disciples, once without Thomas, and then the 11 with Thomas. There was also an appearance to seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and on another occasion, we hear about, he appeared to over 500 people at the same time. There's also an appearance to James. And finally, Jesus appears to Saul of Tarsus, the man who became, of course, the Apostle Paul. But it's the 11 apostles who had the most close-up encounter. You know, Thomas gets a bit of a bad rap for being a doubter, doesn't he? But all the disciples were doubters. None of them could grasp this was the Lord. And so, once more, verse 45, he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And at last, they were believers, convinced beyond any doubt that he had risen from the dead. And he was no ghost either. When in verse 36, Jesus appears to the 11 and says, peace be with you, they were scared. They thought he was a ghost. And so he invited them to touch him, to see his hands and his feet. He ate with them, proving that this was a physical, bodily resurrected Jesus. 
Not some ghostly spirit or trick of the light or mass hallucination. This was no charlatan pretending. But can we trust these witnesses? Certainly the disciples were so convinced of Christ's resurrection power. They'd spend the rest of their lives obeying his command to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They pursued his command passionately, persevering through persecution, beatings, many of them becoming martyrs to the faith. Their motivation could surely only be that they knew the truth. And what do these eyewitness accounts mean to us? Well, it's clear, isn't it? Our ultimate hope is of resurrection experience like that of Jesus, a bodily existence. Our gospel is not just the good news that sins are forgiven, but it's the good news that Because we've been forgiven of our sin, we can enter into eternal life and live in the bliss of heaven forever, in perfect holiness and perfect joy, in glorified, physical, resurrected bodies. The death of Jesus on the cross was no defeat for a broken man, but it was the culmination of God's plan, the mission of Jesus complete. And God's victory confirmed beyond all doubt. Confirmed because he stood there before them. They were witnesses. Christ crucified but alive again. Without that resurrection, we're all condemned, aren't we? As Paul so powerfully writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But in the light of Christ's resurrected life, we are invited by Christ to share resurrected life with him. And for each of us, well, that's a twofold miracle. Firstly, the miracle that that resurrection life bears fruit in earthly life right here, right now. But secondly, joyously, It will bear fruit in resurrection existence eternally for those who've put their faith in him. And that's an astonishing truth that should have our hearts burning like the two disciples in verse 32, no matter how many times we hear it. And shouldn't we want to pick up that baton of witnessing? Not for our sake, but for the sake of others and for his glory. 21st century witnesses to a first century miracle. That's you and me sharing what we know with those who don't. That's the command of Christ at the very end of Matthew's gospel. Chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. We keep witnessing, knowing that Christ is with us always. That's why there must be to the end of the age, the very end of the age, no end of witness. 
And now finally, and very briefly, no end of worship. Just take a look at the closing words of the chapter from verse 50. When he had led them out into the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Each of the disciples who witnessed that ascension of Jesus spent the rest of their lives worshipping their master. Not just in passionate praise and prayer, but in the way they lived their lives. Loving the Lord their God with all their hearts. Loving other people as themselves and witnessing to all people what they had once simply known, but now wonderfully believed. And that's true worship. It doesn't start at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning and if we're lucky, it's over by 12. It's the way we live our life for him. There should be no end to worship. Even though we mess up many times and turn our back on God by thinking the task is too great, we don't have the skills or we're simply terrified of what the world is going to think of us. Take heart. Because we're not alone. But firstly, we have each other. Here in this church, we're physically reduced today in number, but we're growing in strength every day. We've also got our brothers and sisters across the nations, brothers and sisters in Christ to support us, encourage us, love us, inspire us. But of course, we also have Christ himself through the Holy Spirit with us always to the very end of the age. The apostles were no doubt daunted as they gazed into the sky as Jesus ascended. This motley crew of men, who frankly had made quite a mess of things up to this point, they were galvanized by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all there for us to read in the Acts of the Apostles. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the sorry became strong and steadfast. The doubters became dedicated and determined. The cowardly became comforted and courageous. All of them lived changed and powerful lives of worship to our Lord and Savior. So as I finish, I ask you at the end of this series of Luke, where do you stand with this story? Is that what it is to you? An idle tale? Or is it more? Much more than that. I'm fairly certain that most people listening this morning will know the story pretty well. But do we believe it? Do we still wonder at it? Do we trust the witnesses enough to witness ourselves? Do we look forward to a lifetime and an eternity of worship? Do we, believe in it, do we believe in it enough to trust Jesus and obey him as our Lord and Savior because we believe he knows best for us? Do we believe it enough that we'll not be afraid when we feel the darkness crowding in? Enough that in those times we'll fix our eyes on God and not on our surroundings? Do we believe it enough that we'll be content with what God has given us. 
that he will supply our needs one day at a time, that he will indeed give us our daily bread. Are you on the road to Emmaus? Have you turned your back and thinking it was all just a vain hope? Or are we this morning recommitted, turning back to Jerusalem to worship him with great joy? Because we know who God is and believe in his promises, we can surely be bold and courageous. You know, verse 34 is the crux of our faith. It is true, the Lord has risen. Wonder at it, be a witness to it, and live a life of worship because of it. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.